This is Macro Horizons, episode 35, Periscovide Catriophobia, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 9th. And for anyone unfamiliar with that 23-letter word, think 80s cult classic, Camp Crystal Lake, and a hockey mask. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. Remember when non-farm payrolls used to be somebody? That sounds like something back in the 90s when I used to be cool. But anyway, I was never cool. So non-farm payrolls came in lower than expectations. We also saw the added nuance that census hiring accounted for 25,000 jobs, which really ultimately distorted the headline. It wasn't as bad as it would have been. If we look through to private non-farm payroll gains, what we saw was a 96,000 print, well below expectations for 150,000. To characterize it as a massive disappointment, I think would be overstating the fact, but it was, on the margin, notably weaker than expected. The offset being that we had stronger wage gains within the average hourly earnings figures. So the takeaway was, frankly, very little price action in the Treasury market. Part of that, I suspect, stems from the fact that we had a reasonable backup in yields ahead of non-farm payrolls, in a classic consolidation pattern, and the proximity to the low yield marks make it that much more difficult to expect a rally. But as you point out, Ben, let's face it, it hasn't been about the labor market in a very, very long time. In fact, the Fed is still expected to cut rates by another 25 basis points in a couple weeks. That has very little to do with any perceived weakness in non-farm payrolls, but rather is a function of the ongoing and growing global uncertainties with the backdrop of underperforming inflation. So this all sets us up for a extension of the period of consolidation that we have seen. The curve's response to any incoming information will be more telling than where we are in terms of outright yield levels. We still think there's a reasonable chance that 10-year yields could retest 170, 175 before we get through the September FOMC meeting. Part of this logic has to do with the fact that the ECB is meeting on September 12th, and while expectations are for a 10 basis point rate cut to negative 50 basis points, the prospects for additional bond buying have diminished over the course of the last couple of weeks. 10-year German Bund yields are currently at negative 60 basis points, so even a 10 to 15 basis point sell-off in that context will create a downdraft that brings U.S. Treasuries with it. In other monetary policy events overseas, the PBOC reduced its required reserve ratio 
by 50 basis points to 13%. This presumably unlocks a reasonable amount of liquidity for the Chinese economy and is yet another attempt to offset any economic slowdown as a result of the ongoing trade war. Beijing and Washington have, at least for the moment, entered a holding pattern ahead of an October meeting, which has yet to be officially scheduled. It'll be nice to have a bit of a respite from the dueling headlines, trade deal, no trade deal, tariffs, more tariffs, fewer tariffs, back and forth. Although at the end of the day, we continue to anticipate that this process is going to get worse long before it gets any better. But then that sentiment really has characterized 2019 as a whole. Thursday's sell-off was notable. If for no other reason, then the outright magnitude was pretty substantial. Yeah, it's not necessarily rare to see the treasury market price into whatever the consensus non-farm payroll is between the point at which ADP is released and when we actually see the number. So I wasn't that surprised that there was a bearish reaction in treasuries. The more troubling aspect of it, for lack of a better characterization, was simply the magnitude. It was a big sell-off, and it was a big sell-off that came at a point in which the market had already been drifting toward higher yields. Now, taking a step back, really not that strange that we have entered a period of consolidation in which we're building up a volume bulge in and around this level, quarter range of 155 to 165. Again, not a typical behavior for the treasury market, but in light of the recent price action, I think it has given everyone pause. And at the time, I was a bit skeptical of overinterpreting the price action in level terms directly. If you looked at some Eurodollar contracts out in the 2020-2021 range, they were up 16, 17 basis points. The idea that ISM non-manufacturing coming in above expectations, fair enough, that should be growth positive and lead to a little bit of a sell-off in treasuries, but it shouldn't take out necessarily a whole cut going forward. And in the detail, sure, there were some strong components, but employment was at a 29-month low. And in general, it just kind of smacked to me of some positioning getting squeezed, maybe some leveraged players getting stopped out, leading to some self-fulfilling price action. Because at the end of the day, something I noticed is the intraday increase in two-year yields was one of the largest moves we've seen since 2009. A slightly better than expected non-manufacturing print, plus the latest possibility of maybe there being a meeting on the trade war, that doesn't get you to the biggest sell-off in the front end in 10 years. So to me, it was it was outsized. It was a position set back. And frankly, it could have been a good opportunity to get reinvested at higher yields. Wait, so you're saying there may be a possibility of potentially seeing some progress on the trade front? Well, there might be. Could be. Another context that I think is helpful here and something that we heard on the desk was, wow, look at this massive sell-off. Well, yes, that's true, but look at the past two months. Yields are dramatically, to put it diplomatically, lower than they were coming into summer. And let us not forget, we also saw that dismal ISM manufacturing print. And I think that that did a very good job of illustrating the divergence between the service sector of the economy and manufacturing. Yes, manufacturing is a relatively small component of the U.S. economy, but it really has proven to be the epicenter for all of the trade war angst and any flow through from flagging manufacturing confidence to the broader labor market and thereby consumer confidence is something that has to be on the market's radar and 
goes a reasonable distance to explaining exactly why 10-year yields are comfortably trading below 2%. Yeah, and within the details of that Challenger report on Thursday, it went as far as to say explicitly that the trade war is responsible for 10,000 job cuts over August. Telling. Before we totally leave this topic, the positioning squeeze we saw was informative in how the curve played out. What we saw in response to positive data was an intuitive flattening. But if one believes the thesis that much of the outsized price action was more technical or positioning driven in nature rather than a fundamental repricing, the flattening kind of indicates a bit of a pain trade still lingering in the steepener crab. I think the steepener does still hold fundamental appeal. And as people try to relayer into that trade, you get these moments such as this that push back against it, leading to a little bit of further outsized flattener pressure in order to hedge positions. Speaking of hedging, there's been a great deal of chatter that the extent of the treasury market rally was really facilitated by, or at least to some extent, by convexity hedging out of the mortgage market. Now, we know convexity hedgers, by definition, follow the market rather than lead it. And so the idea that we might have seen 10-year yields pushed 5, 10 basis points a bit further than they might have typically certainly does resonate. And another thing in that vein of a couple basis points here or there and describing the price action, at least to start the week, was a really heavy corporate issuance slate. I think on Tuesday, we saw 21 deals brought to the market, which by some measure was a record. And so as the street prepared to take that down and then rebuy some of their initial hedges, at least in the early part of the week, a few basis points here or there could have been a result of the large debt issuance that hit the tapes as we came back from summer. September does tend to be a heavy issuance month in the corporate space. Eventually, the deals will start to slow down, presumably, but that still won't be for a couple months. So I think it's safe to say that this is a factor that will be with us for some time. And more generally, at moments where we start to rely on position squeezing, convexity hedging, corporate issuance to try to make sense of the price action, I find it helpful to try to take a step back and think of what's the broad fundamental narrative that's going on. And I don't think it's really changed over the past week. The Fed is either going to have to cut 75 basis points in a mid-cycle, they're going to be able to pull it off, extend the expansion, avert global recession, dot, dot, dot. That's scenario one. Scenario two is, whoops, no, they didn't. We're in a global contraction going back down to zero, and we're all hiding under our desks. I don't think that's really changed. If anything, perhaps some of the positive signals on the trade front or the strong read into the U.S. services sector increased the probability of the mid-cycle, decreased the probability of the cut down to the effective lower bound. But we're still in a framework where the vast majority of weight is going to be on one of those two outcomes. It'll just go back and forth between their relative probabilities and probably will for some time going forward. Well, there's also a reasonably strong argument that with 10-year yields at 150, we've already priced in a pretty dire outcome even beyond the mid-cycle move. So envision a world in which the Fed does push beyond 75 basis points of rate cuts. It doesn't necessarily find itself in a situation where they have to do QE. There's a technical recession. The economy then moves out of it. That doesn't mean that 10-year yields have to trade below 125. We've had recessions in the U.S. economy before, and 10-year yields have never been this low. That's an interesting framework you bring up. And one thing I'd like to dive into there is, in my mind, the Fed's playbook 
if there is a recession, is cut to the effective lower bound, and then start asset purchases. Do you see a scenario where there's a modest enough recession where they could cut either to the effective lower bound or just above or whatever and not start asset purchases? Yeah, I could actually very easily see a situation where they don't even need to cut to the effective lower bound. And the way that I could imagine that playing out is they continue steady 25 basis point rate cuts into the new year. The economy falters at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, but then appears to be rebounding as we go into the second half of next year. And only in hindsight, when the NBER dating committee looks back and says, oh, the actual recession occurred in this period, not dissimilar to what could very well be playing out in Germany over the course of the next few quarters. I think that's a scenario in which the Fed doesn't have to buy bonds, and we don't actually see monetary policy up against the effective lower round. That's an interesting thought, and I'll have to consider this a bit more, how that interacts with the political dimension. You can imagine a world where the Fed isn't doing everything it can to extend the cycle the way that it's promised, if only because of the backward-looking nature of recession definition. You know, imagine if we're in a recession and the Fed's not at zero, there would probably be a lot of calls for additional rate cuts to be coming, and it might be difficult for them to hold off unless we're already starting to see an upswing. That's it, exactly. We would need to see that transition, that upswing. And so it will feel as though it's a recession that never happened when we actually were in a recession. Now, as a point of clarification, this isn't my baseline scenario. I was just making the observation that we could find ourselves in a situation where 10-year yields do not have to trade with a zero handle. And a good portion of that also feeds into this notion that I'm continuing to hold on to, and that is the pendulum of economic pessimism has swung to the sky is falling position. And at some point, we'll have a greater sense in the market of calm and something a bit more balanced, which arguably we started to see some of that on Thursday, which simply means some interim upward pressure on yields. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that the pseudo-optimistic scenario is, well, tens don't have to trade with a zero handle going forward. And if and when we start to see this sort of pendulum swing back toward the optimistic side of things, a pickup in break-evens would be intuitive. After all, they're pretty low, to put it mildly. However, the way this plays out in the shape of the curve might be a little bit more difficult to discern. Yeah, and to some extent also in the outright level of 10 and 30-year yields. I think it's pretty safe to say that when animal spirits finally do take hold of the market, two years are going to sell off as the probability that the Fed needs to engage in a deeper rate-cutting cycle is lowered. The biggest unknown from my perspective is whether that triggers another policy error trade, i.e. flattening to the point of inversion or beyond, or if the market looks at the increase in break-evens and simply says that the treasury curve needs to provide a bit more term premium, which in and of itself should be a solid re-steepening of two's tens at least. If I were to skew the odds, I would expect that the first leg of that trade is going to be a revisit of the policy air flattening that ultimately then resolves in a steeper curve when all is said and done. And just to try to put some numbers around this, if we assume 10-year real yields stay ballpark zero, 10-year break-evens increase to 180 basis points, you can get 10s at 180, 190 without too much difficulty. The question then is, if the Fed cuts two, three times, overnight rates are going to be in the high ones. And from there, it really is a path of policy story, 
right around where tens might be trading. So I agree with you that whether there's a deeper move into inversion or a restaping of the curve really has to do with a function of how far does the Fed cut overnight rates and how much inflation comp do they push into the back of the curve. What about the ECB? I could envision a world in which the ECB is well engaged in a rate cutting campaign, pushing negative rates even more negative in Europe, while the macro narrative in the US is a bit more positive. I think that's part of the story behind why we did see the continued outperformance of the longer end of the curve, and frankly, the curve inversion that is played out during the second half of 2019. And bringing up the ECB and the governing council next week, I think this is a pretty major risk point for markets. A big component of the rally in long duration globally we've seen has been driven by expectations of potential rate cuts or a new QE program out of the ECB. There's been a lot of public debate from governing council members. Is it the right decision to actually go this track? And given how far the market has already priced this in, this does open the possibility of a snapback if the ECB disappoints. Certainly, this complicates Draghi's exit and the guard's entrance, but this is a palpable test point for the rally and global duration we've seen. I don't think this necessarily pushes 10-year yields back above 2%, but you could see a pretty solid retracement. Well, and let's keep in mind the reputation of the ECB is not the reputation of the Fed. So for context, the Fed has managed to outdove dovish expectations at pretty much every official meeting and episode this year, with perhaps an exception or two. That's not the case with the ECB. The ECB has historically been willing to deliver consensus, but not overpromise, just as a theme. Again, in the run-up to the ECB meeting, presumably the market will arrive at some type of more definable consensus, while at this moment it simply seems to be rate cut with a probability of QE later, maybe. Speaking of maybe, what's the latest on the ultra-long bonds? As far as I can tell, it's still under consideration. Maybe we'll expect a T-back charge in the next quarter or two. The irony is, in the meantime, the expectation, or at least possibility of ultralongs being introduced have led to a little bit of a relative selling in 30s. With 10s and 30s reopening on deck next week, this just equates to Treasury paying up a few more basis points in the interim while the market eagerly awaits news about whether they might be getting 50s, 100s, or whatever else in the pipeline. Well, what about a zero coupon perpetuity? You mean a dollar bill? In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a variety of competing factors to deal with. First up, we do have supply. We have a 10 and a 30 year auction that will offer a bit of a counterpoint to the flattening that has been in place for quite some time. We remain in the re-steepening camp, although must concede that the monetary policy action scheduled for the balance of September will create specific pockets of tradable risks as we look toward the end of the year. Let us not forget we have core CPI on Thursday, as well as retail sales on Friday. These are going to be very pivotal in helping the Fed define exactly where we are in the business cycle. And while at the end of the day, it's hard to imagine anything that comes out of either of these releases that will derail the Fed from cutting another 25 basis points on September 18th, 
it will nonetheless help gauge exactly how far the Fed is ultimately going to be able to ease given the cover of the domestic economic data. Now, we all know that the easing campaign thus far has been predicated on uncertainties, and those uncertainties were largely tied to the trade war. If we see anything that resembles a continuation of the weakness reflected in the ISM manufacturing print, then that would open the door for a potential greater series of rate cuts. As it stands right now, we're expecting that the September meeting will offer an inflection point at which the Fed tries to dial back expectations for more than 75 basis points in aggregate rate cuts. This creates a very specific communications challenge and one that we anticipate will ultimately resolve in a temporary bearishness in the treasury market as the fourth quarter unfolds. That isn't to say that we're necessarily going to end September with a massive sell-off in treasuries. However, the Fed will need to thread the proverbial needle if they're going to signal that they're nearing the end of the fine-tuning adjustments, particularly at a point when the ECB is now entering its rate-cutting cycle with expectations for at some point, presumably not in the next coming months, the return of Europe's bond-buying program. Within those two primary releases this week, inflation and consumption, we'll be watching for a couple specific things. Within core inflation, the continued performance of owner's equivalent rent remains relevant, especially in the context of a stronger-than-expected average hourly earnings gauge. We have reached the point in the business cycle where the inability of realized wage gains to transfer through to actual core inflation has left the market somewhat dismissive of the prospects that that ultimately occurs. Even if it does occur, we're so far into the business cycle that it becomes much, much easier to dismiss. Nonetheless, if there is any upside risk for higher than expected core inflation, it would need to be predicated on not only strong owner's equivalent rent and shelter costs, but also any flow through from tariffs into the actual pricing on the consumer side. Taking a look at retail sales, we always tend to focus on the control group, which backs out auto prices, building materials, and gasoline costs for any indication that the consumer's relatively robust performance year to date should be questioned. Rounding out the offerings nicely will be the University of Michigan sentiment update for the month of September that will close out the data offerings on Friday the 13th. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And as Draghi's second-to-last day of work quickly approaches, we'll lament only having a few opportunities left to say, make it super, Mario. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. 
You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.